0: Everybody, welcome to the Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I'm very excited about today's chat with Dr. Eddie S. Glad Jr. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Another note to point out, the studio will be taking a much-deserved vacation for a couple of weeks in early August, but don't fret. We have previously recorded interviews. They are going to be interesting nonetheless, and uh, we hope you'll tune in for that, and we'll be back with our normal recording schedule for the 24th of August. So that weekend, we will be posting our usual episodes Okay, it's time for Dr. Eddie S. Glaude Jr. He is an author, political commentator, and educator who examines the complex dynamics of the American experience. He is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University professor and is a former president of the American Academy of Religion. He frequently appears in the media as a columnist for Time magazine and then regularly appears on MSNBC and Meet the Press. His most recent book is 2020's Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. And he is host of the podcast, History Is Us. Dr. Glaude, welcome to the back room.
1: Oh, it is my pleasure to join you. Looking uh, forward to the conversation.
0: So before we get into some of the more meaty subjects, I always like to peel back the onion a little bit and talk about people when they're growing up. And uh, Tell me about your childhood. where did you grow up and what was life like? And were you always kind of a social justice, political news nerd kind of guy?
1: Um, that's a fascinating question. So I grew up on the coast of Mississippi. A small town called Moss Point, Mississippi, Mm -hmm. named after the moss that hang from magnolia trees and cypress trees, Uh, you know, the moss that shadowed, you know, Bayou rivers and Mm -hmm. the like, you know. Uh, My dad was a postman, the second African-American hired at the post office in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Uh, And my mother was a custodial worker at Ingalls Shipyard.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, No real college, uh, you know, Folks, college graduates in the family really uh, didn't grow up with books, you know, working class, hard working class people, you know, family. Um, my dad was this kind of overbearing presence, you know, he was this man who scared the shit out of me uh, with a glance, with a glare. And he also deposited not only fear in my gut, but a kind of, you know, uh, insistence on. On fighting for right, fighting for good, right, standing up for myself in a way. So it was a really, it was a really complex childhood, right? Trying to deal with finding my own voice in a very small town and dealing with, um, as many of us do, the overbearing presence of a man who uh, played played and plays such a significant role in your self understanding. You know, mm. so it was. Is an interesting journey. And Moss Point is predominantly black. It's the labor force for the predominantly white town, Pascagoula. Just to give you a sense of the place, Trent Locke was the representative from our area, from Pascagoula, mm. yeah, so.
0: And that kind of dysfunction, I understand that because you're kind of describing a lot of what my childhood was like, and my father was a taxi driver. We were blue collar and my father didn't make it past the eighth grade. I was the only person in my family to go to college, and so one wonders when you come from that kind of environment, how do you break out of that? How do you find the self esteem, the self worth, determination, the ambition to rise above that and become independent enough to not become that and instead become something else? How did that work for you? You know, I,
1: yeah, I think it's a combination of things, right? You know, so. Even though my mother didn't, you know, didn't graduate high school. She had to drop out in the ninth grade to have our, my, have her first baby, my sister. Uh, my dad didn't go to college. Um, they had a sense though, of, of what they expected of us, mm-hmm. you know, whenever um, they were basically growing up with us, he was 21, she was 20 when they married. Uh, but I remember when report card day happened, you know, what happened, he would line us up outside of the living room and call us in one by one. And, you know, and would chastise us if we had a B on our report card. You know, my sister graduated valedictorian, the first uh, African-American to graduate valedictorian of our high school. And immediately they had two valedictorians that year, one white and one black. She went on, she went on to go to Spelman College, and then I fo- followed her. Uh, so there's a sense in which the expectations of excellence, of hard work, uh, that were the values imparted to us by our mother and father. Uh, and also this broader community, folks who noticed that you had something in you.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, my principal, my teachers, my baseball coach. I remember I was a pitcher in Little League and I was getting rocked. And the the head coach came out to take me off the mound and I was disrespectful. He took the ball and told me to go sit my little behind on the bench. <laughs> and you know the lessons of character that were imparted in those, those spaces. So is, and then, of course, there's the individual side of it. I have this, you know, I imagine myself in the most expansive of terms. So here I am in this small town, uh, and I'm reading, you know, Tolkien's trilogies. I'm getting lost, uh, you know, in 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 Terry Brooks's fantasy worlds, like The Sword of Shannara. You know, um, I'm reading under my under my bed. I almost set the bed on fire with a candle because I wanted to get away from everyone. Um, so there was this kind of you know the the qualitative leap that my imagination afforded me, so I could see myself in worlds that extended beyond you know my little town and and my dad, as complicated as he is um, facilitated it in his own way, so I think it's a combination of grit and and how can I put this, Doc? It's a kind of hard love, a kind of hard love that leaves, leaves its bruises and scars, but it's love nevertheless.
0: That's what's really important. is It's not so much where your parents come from and what they don't have, but it's what they instill in you and want you to become. When a child is, is raised in a certain environment, can you stop them from eventually becoming who they are? Are they gonna be who they are no matter where they live? what challenges they might experience, what obstacles might be in their path. And uh, clearly you're an example of that. How long did you take your dad's encouragement or lack thereof into your adulthood? Did it take you a long time to sort of reconcile the man he was versus the man you wanted to be?
1: Yeah. You know, again, I said he deposited fear in my gut Mm. and I've been... You know, I've been for much of my life, I've been trying to prove that I'm not a coward mm. uh, because he he scared me. So not because he would put his hands on me, uh, but he was just that kind of figure. Um, I would have nightmares uh, of us fighting and I would be getting the best of him. And then I would wake up. Right. Up until late into my adulthood, um, trying to figure out where this man ended and where I began. Um, And it's only as I got older uh, where my judgment of him was more generous, where this account that I just gave you emerged Um, uh, there, you know, there I basically ran away from home at 16. Uh, I left. I wanted to get away from him and I left and went to college. You know, Um, I, I went to Morehouse College at 16 and I never looked back. I tried to start. I started writing my first book. I just wrote about this. I started writing my first book uh, when I was, I think, in the eighth grade, and it was going to be on the difference between physical abuse and psychological abuse. Wow! And the irony, of course, was that I was, I was writing on the typewriter that he bought us because he knew we had to know how to type. You see that? Oh yeah. You see the the irony there. The contradiction. Sure. And yeah, so so it it took a while. It took a while, mm. but I'm here, and I love him to death. So he's still alive. Oh yeah he's still alive and and you know we we talk he calls me all the time to tell me what I should say on television
0: <laughs> is has there ever been a moment of contrition a mea culpa moment with him
1: yeah you know I mean he gave me an accounting you know oftentimes we're dealing with generational evil evil that's been passed down you know a kind of wounding that 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 isn't that it's beginning and end isn't with the person right in front of us. Mm. And, and as we grow and mature and in some ways that maturity is how do we release ourselves into a different way of being? It requires coming to terms with that self that has been shaped in, in these ways. And so I remember asking my father um, a question and he was sitting at the kitchen table and you know mind you, he was, he worked at the post office. So for us, that's, that's high cotton, you know, right. post offices is, is really good stuff back in the day. And I remember him cleaning, starting to wipe, you know, crumbs off a table that weren't there. And telling me that he never remembers his mother touching it. Mm. Uh, my father is my color, but all of his sisters and brothers are really light skinned. Um, just a few generations back, people are speaking French. Uh, we're on the coast. My last name is Glaude. That's French. Um, and so he grew up with colorism cause he's the wow. darkest in the family. Um, and then there's, you know, the moment, the stories he used to tell about leaving Catholic school and going to the public school and how those stories used to be about how good he was with his hands, right. That my dad could really fight, but I never heard what was really behind those stories that he was bullied that people said he wasn't going to amount to anything and he decided to prove them all right. Um, and so he gave me an account. And from that point on, um, I began a journey of judging him less and trying to understand him more. And that freed me up you know, to become the man that I'm trying to be at the age of 54.
0: It's so fascinating. I've had people on the podcast and we've talked about this kind of stuff, issues with parents and they eventually get the mea culpa moment, you know, I'm sorry, I did the best I could, you know, and it's very important <laughs> yeah. to have that moment where you get the apology. It's great because it then allows you to say, okay, you know, I, I, I can move forward, yeah. who were your inspirations growing up? Like when you looked out into the world, beyond your family,
1: who oh lit that goodness. fire under you? Um. You know, to be honest with you, everybody was dead. There were people who were in books, right. you know so mm-hmm. Martin Luther King jr. was one um all of those activists in 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 Mississippi during the sixties um they became hero heroes and heroines um my My teachers you know dr polk um but a, a lot of it had something to do with kind of I, I don't want to say I was it was sui generis that I was unprecedented. But I'm coming out of a household where there are not a lot of books. Right. And so, you know, I had to kind of create myself. Miss Mitchell, who who had her, she was a singer and she had heard her throat, heard her vocal course, so she had to teach. She taught me history. She had to teach with a microphone. And I remember Miss Mitchell, who loved me to death, and also Miss Lee. Um and Ms. Mitchell was teaching the Civil War and, and, you know, show you how crazy it was, I'm sitting up here finding I love Stonewall Jackson. It doesn't make any damn sense. Uh, but Ms. Mitchell assigned me, just assigned me to, to present on, 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 on Ping's uh, I Have a Dream speech. And I remember going to the library, getting the album, and having to start it over, over and over again, uh, and memorized it. And from that moment on, Everything changed. Mm. But, you know, actually prior to that, give you a sense of, of, of my dad's complexity. I remember in the fourth grade, Miss Davis, because I was in advanced classes, so I was always kind of one of three or one of two or the only one in my class, black person. And I remember my, my fourth grade teacher singling me out in a way that was, I, was unacceptable to me. And I screamed, you are racist, and I ran out of the classroom. I thought I was going to get killed, Doc. I thought when I got home, all hell was going to break loose. And my dad called me into the kitchen or wherever we were at the time. And, and he, we had the, he brought me nose to nose. And he clenched, clenched teeth. What happened? And I said, you know, in my own way, in my own scary way, uh, this is what she did. She said, He said, What? What did she say? And I said, This is what she said. And then he clenched his teeth. If anybody, Ever says some shit like that to you again, you do the same thing. You stand up for yourself. You hear me? And then walked away. Wow. So there's this, Mm. there was this kind of continuum from that moment to that album to what was instilled in me at Morehouse to now.
0: Mm. Quite a journey. Does that make sense? It certainly does. (laughs) So this week we saw President Biden announce a monument for Emmett Till. And my first thought was, how did it take this long in this country, number one? But I want to ask you what your thoughts are on that, but also even more importantly, the timing of it with what we're living with today in this country with regard to race and racism, institutional racism.
1: Well, the timing couldn't be be more perfect. You know, here we are engaged in a a vexing battle over the story that we tell ourselves, whether it's in Florida or whether it's Moms for Liberty across the country banning books or, uh, you know, efforts to renege on on commitments around anti-racism as, you know, the racial reckoning proved itself to be uh, fleeting. Um, So here we are in this moment where there's this battle being waged over the story we tell ourselves and feelings of guilt and responsibility or culpability. To build and you know, to have in the built environment, you know, a monument to Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley uh, constitutes a physical intervention because we learn race not just by in books, but we learn race by moving about spaces, right? The way cities are organized, the way towns are organized, um, the way workspaces are, you know, that's how we learn and imbibe certain meanings of who are who's valued and who's not. So. It's it's an important moment, I think, that you know, as those as those persons try to, ref, as those persons refuse to look the ugliness and cruelty and barbarity of slavery in its face, uh, and its consequences, uh, to have an Emmett Till monument. An Emmett Till monument is very different than traditional civil rights monuments, right? Because it's not about the triumphant narrative of the heroic efforts of ordinary black folk in, in the country reaching for a more perfect union. Emmett Till is a monument to utter cruelty and barbarity. A 14-year-old lynched, head blo- gun put to the head, beaten beyond recognition. And so it's, it's, it's like the lynching memorial in Montgomery. It resists triumphalist, a kind of triumphalist narrative. You have to confront instead what human beings are capable of. It's like the Holocaust Museum, right? It's... This is the horror, right? And so, but then to kind of, to kind of compare that with Mamie Till Mobley is really important mm-hmm. because it's not just violence, it's also her, her courage, her heroism. This ordinary black woman whose faith was unshakable, who said to, to, to the folk, no, 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 we're not gonna close that mm-hmm. casket. I want all these people to see what they did to my baby. Mm-hmm. And so here you have utter brutality, paired with extraordinary courage, activism, agency, self- in the midst. Exactly, in the midst of a moment that is our current political moment, where ugliness, um, a kind of mean spiritedness, uh, threatens to overrun and overwhelm everything. So I think it's beyond. You know, I mean, people can think about it in terms of a run up to the 2024 campaign, trying to get black voters excited, however you want to think about it, um, practically or cynically. Um, in this moment, it's just an extraordinary intervention.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it, you, talking about his mom and what she did and why she did it as a parent, as a human, how deeply I appreciate what she did and understood the pain. Behind it. My late wife was an actor and a filmmaker, and she was murdered in 2006. So I, I've dealt with someone close to me who was murdered. I didn't have to make a decision, especially a political one, in the sense of should I show the world what she looks like? But um, I often think about like your baby, your 14 year old, who looked the way he did when they found him, to make that decision. To put it yeah. out there for eternity. It's the kind of courage and strength and selflessness that is just unfathomable. It's superhuman, you know?
1: And just think about that moment now. You know, this, in some ways, sorry, um, in some ways, um, the murder of Emmett Till is the response to uh, the Brown v. Board decision of 54. Emmett Till is murdered in August of 55. December of 55, you get the Montgomery bus boycott. By 1957, just two years later, you got Little Rock 9. By 1960, you have the formal organization of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee because over the last two years, from 58 to 60, there's there's student sit-ins across the South. So this moment, Emmett Till's uh, murder, is on the front end of world historic change, not by, not by the likes of Dr. King, but by the likes of people like Mamie Till Mobley, right? Everyday ordinary people, short sharecroppers, washerwomen, you know, janitors and the like who dare to to strike the blow for freedom. So it's an extraordinary moment in American history and in in world history, it seems to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And when Biden said, silence is complicity. That speaks volumes of where we are today, because not only do we have people who are silent, we have people who are just blatantly, shamelessly committing acts of racism without any fear of consequence.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's easy to, to condemn the monsters. You know, Bryant and Neelam, the two men who murdered, along with the other black men who were conscripted to murder Emmett Till it's easy to condemn them as monsters, right? But I'm thinking about the community of folk. So we live in a, in a world that is, we live in a country that is fraught, right? That is saturated with injustice. And people are, are going about their days, taking their kids to, to baseball games, trying to put food on the table. Um, and we've been living like this for a while. Our silence in relation to living in a society that's incarcerating people at rates that are unimaginable. A society where people are dying because they're sick and they don't have money uh, to pay healthcare bills. A society where, depending upon where you live, will dictate what kind of education you receive. So it's easy to condemn the monsters, but those of us who are Quiet in relation in 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 response to a world where all of that exists, we become complicit with the monsters so how could I put this in the battle against racism in the battle against anti-Semitism, in the battle against whatever we're fighting um they're are the loud they're the loud folk and then they're the folk who aren't saying anything and they are they join? So it, in the Venn diagram, it's always more people than we think there are. Right. <laughs> that's that's defending the world, um, that 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 we are that we're claiming is evil, though that, that we that we're claiming isn't right. So silence is complicity. the The challenge isn't the loud racist. The challenge is the person who thinks they think that they're decent but who's quiet in the face of all of this nonsense. Right.
0: I want to talk about the more macro issue of racism. Um, sure. And it's a great segue to the gentleman who's in that photo behind you, James Baldwin. <laughs> uh, you wrote a book in 2020 called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America, and it's urgent lessons for our own. I want to read a passage from that book. Quote, I didn't say much at the gravesite. I kneeled down and quietly said, thank you. As I touched his grave, I stood up and thought to myself, I've been reading Jimmy for 30 years. He has been waiting for us, waiting to see what this history of ours, once we pass through it, has made us all. He still waits. He's really still waiting, right? Like he's not, there's no light at the end of that tunnel, is there?
1: No, no. I mean, part of the debate around history, Doc, is that, you know, we we don't want to confront who we are you know there are these i mean it's almost like a ritual practice you know there are these moments where we we recognize the contradiction at the heart of the american experiment that we don't really know who we are right that 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 revelation runs up against our self understanding right who we say we are runs up against who we really are right um and we try to we try to address the contradiction we try to figure it out, right? You can think about Reconstruction as one of those periods. You can think about the Civil Rights Movement, the, the, the legislation of the mid-20th century as one of those periods. And every last one of them, they're, found, they're, they're immediately followed by the betrayal, by the violent backlash, and then absolution, right? We tried. We tried to fix it and then move on. And so Baldwin is like, no, 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 no. We have to grow the hell up. We keep acting like adolescents, right? We refuse to be responsible for what we've done and for who we are, and we can't. We will never get off this hamster wheel um, unless we acknowledge the facts of our of our past and actually confront it, so that we can be better people. You know, you can't be. I, I say this. I say this when I travel all around the country. You know, you can say all the shit you want to say, excuse my language, about um, how you love your wife and how you're going to be a better husband. But if you don't deal with the lie that you've been telling at the heart of it all, no matter what you do and how you behave, nothing will fundamentally change. So if you're going to really release yourself into being a different kind of human being, a different kind of country. We have to tell the truth about who we are,
0: but we're moving so far away from that right now. I've got ten years on you. I don't know how you feel, but <laughs> and I know this is our our country has had a pretty racist history, but
1: right. it just
0: feels like I can't remember when our country was so blatantly outwardly racist the way it is today. It's easy to point fingers at someone like DeSantis who pretty much said, slaves should be thanking us for how great it was. Um, But since Biden took office, over 40 states have introduced or passed laws or taken other measures to restrict how race and issues of racism are taught in this country. That's pretty damn scary because we never seemed as a country to be afraid of our history. Some people may not have wanted to talk about it, but like now we're like, let's erase that history. It's crazy. It just seems like we're in a very unique place in our history, and it's a very scary place.
1: It is. We're at an inflection point. And, you know, like a, like a boxer, when you're young, you got legs and your chin is good. So you could take some blows, right? We're not as young as we used to be as a nation. Um, and so one wonders if we could take this blow on the chin this time, whether or not we have the legs uh, to get up. But, you know, they're, 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 they're pre- historical precedents. You think about, after, after Radical Reconstruction, what historians call the second founding, where we get our modern notions of citizenship, uh, where uh, you know, we get the Civil War Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, that's where we get due process uh, and the like. Um, what did we get in response to that effort? We got the lost cause. And that didn't originate in the South, by the way. That originated the, you know, the John Dunning School. That was at Columbia University in, in New York City. And, and what is the lost cause? The lost cause is a refusal at its heart. It's a refusal to confront what brought us to the precipice. What, what happened? What choices did we make to leave over 600,000 bodies on the battlefield? And so you had a generation of kids taught the lost cause across the South and in the Midwest and in the Sun Belt generation of kids and they were taught that black folk didn't have the capacities to take on the burdens of citizenship they were taught that the union armies the federal government invaded the south overextended its reach and you know what those folks grew up and they grew up many of them to participate in lynch mobs in Tulsa they grew up to participate uh in Rosewood they grew up Bryant, Millen J.W. Millen they grew up to do what they did to Emmett Till so how can I put this in an abstract way? How, who and what we choose to leave out of our stories all too often reveals the limits of our, our, of our ideas of justice. Who and what we leave out exposes, right? Exposes what our idea, our limits of our notions of justice. So people are telling the story or insisting on telling the story this way right now. Because they don't want to be responsible. They don't want to be held to account. And more importantly, Andy, they want to, they, they're want They clinging to this idea that this nation must remain white and Christian. It cannot be otherwise. And they know that the demographics suggest otherwise.
0: You host a podcast called History is sure. Us. It's terrific. And Thank um, you. you ask... In one of the episodes, maybe episode four, what are people like DeSantis so afraid of? What do you think that answer
1: is? That's a good question. You know, the easy answer is um, afraid of, you know, a multicultural, multiracial America. That's the easy answer. But, you know, Baldwin has this wonderful phrase, this wonderful formulation. He says, the messiness of the world is a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. For some reason, the way in which he, how he occupies space and time, I think his fears cut much deeper. Right? I think his hatreds, his grievance, his, uh, his absolute obsession with power, by any means, actually reflects a deeper wound. You know, so it's easy to say that Desantis is just a racist who d- wants to keep the nation white, blah blah blah. But I think the pain and terror cuts much deeper. And, and see, for me, that's important to say because it keeps me from, from just saying that he is he's that he's not just simply engaged in monstrous behavior, but it keeps me from saying that he's a monster, right? Um, and I think that's important. I got to keep in touch with the humanity of these people, otherwise. Right. I become like them. Right. And Baldwin taught me that he says, you know, we have, he says, what I don't want us to do is to, I want us to imagine creating a self without the need for an enemy. Right. I don't need DeSantis to be an enemy. I just, I, I, to me, I see a broken human being. And, and I, I don't know why, but I know it's probably deeper than the fact that he just simply doesn't like black people or brown people or, LGBTQ plus people. I know it's something else.
0: But there's so many (laughs) broken people then who are following him and, and lapping up all this rhetoric. You know, what he's doing in the schools, on your podcast, historian Kevin Cruz says, quote, history is about the good and the bad. If you just have the good part, that's not history, it's propaganda. You know, we're moving in this country to this Quasi autocracy that sort of looms above, and we're still dealing with Donald Trump, and he's the front runner. And my god, he could, you know, never say never, he could be president again. Like, and you start to see all the seeds that he planted the media is the enemy of the people, and how he riled up. You know, there's so many parallels to Germany in the 20s when Hitler first Mm -hmm. came on the scene, and Hitler wasn't stopped. Trump was eventually stopped. The system held. It was like a dam. Mm-hmm. But, like, every once in a while, if you look at a dam and you start to see, like, one little piece of water right. coming through, you're like, wait a second. In five years, is that dam going to crash? Like, it, can you say in two years, five years, we will not be experiencing the end of our democracy like so many
1: other great democracies in history? No. I mean, what we, what we see is that one of the major political parties uh, has been overrun. By these noxious and insidious views. Um, and we also know that there are uh, elements uh, within uh, our, our country, namely corporate America, that is content to stoke those views as long as they're able to uh, make their profits and control the reins of government in order to um, hold off regulation as uh, they continue to pursue their relentless, relentlessly pursue. Uh, 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 capital. And so it's a kind of convergence of forces, of selfishness, of greed, and of hatred in a moment where everyone feels as if, you know, the ground beneath their feet has has turned to sand, everyone except for the top one-tenth of a percent. And so, you know, when I say that, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll say, Andy, that we have to be better people, And it sounds so Pollyannish, you know, we have to be better people Um, because if we were better people, we wouldn't be satisfied with the world as it is. Um, And it seems to me that there are folks who are appealing to grievance, appealing to our fears uh, for their own gain. Uh, And some people find it easier to scapegoat others than to deal with the pain right in front of them right because at the heart of the heart of the of the problem is that we tend to imagine the american dream as a zero sum game right we can't we can't bake a bigger pie because if you know they tell us that we only have so much pie to go around and that's a lie because we know some people are stealing most of it and so i i think we're at that moment an in inflection point particularly with this generation that's coming up a generation that has been raised how can I put it cascading crises cascading catastrophes they know this shit is broken and so they're open to um many of them at least are open to imagining the country anew while others in their generation are reaching for old vocabularies they want to become the new brown shirts as it were um and so Yeah, it's a scary moment, but it's a moment that's consistent with the country that refuses to grow up. The Supreme Court, which is the
0: branch of government charged with protecting our rights, our freedoms, in the recent past has not instilled the kind of confidence that they're doing a good job of that. In fact, they seem to be going in the opposite direction and, and almost saying the equivalent of, hey, it's great. Racism is over. It's finally over. You, uh, right. I think, retweeted something this week about a ruling with regard to the treatment of death row inmates.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, again, this goes back to how mean-spirited people are. I think this is in the case of Alabama, I think. Right. Uh, and the rush to take a life in this way by people who claim to be pro-life, right? And you know, part of the story of the court, Andy, is a is a is a story that it hasn't always. We tend to think of the Warren Court as kind of the example, right? But when we look at the history of the court, um, particularly when it comes to race matters, um, it hasn't it hasn't been, um, uh, shall we say, a clear and clean record. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I think whether it's around the death penalty, whether it's around uh, voting rights, whether it's around uh, LGBTQ plus rights, whether it's around women's right to control their own bodies, um, we find the court actively uh, moving on behalf of a constituency that aims to take us back. And. What they're trying to take us back to isn't something that actually existed, right? They're trying to take us back to their idealization of what it means for cisgendered men, white men, to run the world, uh, and it's it's a horrifying uh, it's a horrifying uh, picture. And that court decision was cruel to my mind. It's just one example.
0: That decision involved. Three inmates who were executed. Two of those executions, of uh, Alan Miller and Kenneth Smith, were ultimately called off when prison officials could not ex- access a suitable vein. Another inmate, Joe James, was put to death only it's after a three-hour delay. It
1: is beyond cruel. It's just cruel. It's just cruel. And you know, it's unconstitutional because it's cruel. But the conservative judges,
0: justices don't seem to care.
1: They don't seem to because, care. Because these people, to their mind, are disposable. Right. This is why, this you know, if we don't, I mean, Madison, as complicated as he is, understood that in order for democracies to work, it required a particular kind of human being. That's why virtue, character, is so critical. Right. If we can't be those kinds of people, then this can't survive. It won't. That's why we we have to be better people.
0: But it's right? interesting. And I'm not
1: talking about being more mannerable mm-hmm. or decent or civil. I'm talking about virtue. I'm talking about character.
0: The scary part is that that genie to me seems to have been let out of the bottle in terms of those virtues. And I don't know if you can put that back in once it's out. You know, that's what uh, scares me the most going forward. Yeah,
1: you know, I try to resist a kind of fatalism. Uh, I come out of a tradition, Doc, where there was nothing there was nothing reasonable about expecting that the world would change. Nothing. It, wouldn't, it wasn't, it was, there was nothing about one's experience as an enslaved human being to lead you to believe that your life could be anything else but that. Mm-hmm. But one of the most extraordinary moments in, 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 in American history is the moment in which slavery ends. And one of the first things the enslaved do is that they literally start walking, trying to find people they love trying, my love, this person was sold down south and they start walking towards Mississippi. So in the the midst of the darkness of the hour, you know, I have this unabiding faith in the capacity of human beings who are at once sons of bitches to be miracles. You know, we have done and, and we're capable of being miraculous as much as we are capable of being monstrous and wild beasts. Um, I have to have that faith. If I don't, I'll drink too much Irish whiskey. Yeah. no,
0: I, I, uh, I hang on to that same kind of optimism myself. I try to look at the things that have happened that are positive. The system did hold in the last couple of years. The courts, for the most part, reject all of Trump's nonsense. It's ugly, but the dam hasn't broken, but there's still a lot of right. collateral damage. And racism is, but- is one key element of that.
1: But, Andy, Andy, I want to insist that it's not optimistic. This is not, this is not Voltaire's Candide. This is not the best of all possible worlds, right? Think about that moment in Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. There's this moment when Denver, this, the young character who's been so obsessed with how she was born and, and the like, and history literally comes back as a ghost and is consuming a mother, and she has to step off the edge of the world, as Toni writes, right, in order to go save her mother. And she hesitates, she stops, fear grabs her, and then she has a memory. And she remembers her conversation between her grandmother and her mother, and her grandmother is giving Seth of the business, right? Well, don't tell me about who these people are. They have more people these white folk have killed than the world has ever seen. This ain't a battle, it's a rout. That's what she remembers. And then she freezes, and then she hears the voice of her grandmother. Why aren't you walking down these steps? Don't you remember why I told you why I walked the way I walked? Don't you remember why your daddy did what he did? And then Denver says to her grandmother, but you you said it was a route. And she said it is. Then what do I do? Know it. but are going out the yard. That's not optimism. Right. <laughs> you see, that's not optimism. That's not denying the darkness of the hour. That's not denying you know, that the wild beast are rampaging. No, 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 no. Know it, but go on out the yard. Act anyway. Persevere. Exactly. Yeah. What you did in response to to that that eighth grade educated man who tried to deposit something in your gut and you refused to. You knew it, but you went on out the yard mm-hmm. anyway.
0: So when looking at the Supreme Court, you know, 10 years ago they gutted the the Civil Rights Act. and The justification was we don't need it anymore, which is tantamount to saying, let's close the umbrella in a rainstorm because we've been dry, right? So it was idiotic. And then affirmative action uh, and Alabama, defying an order to create a second black district in its redrawing of its congressional map. States defying the Supreme Court. Well, that's new territory for us as a country. That scares me when you see that. When you see Texas defying the Department of Justice to get rid of the floating barriers that are deemed inhumane to, to migrants. All of this just seems so back to a time when things were out of
1: control, and that's really scary. Right. Remember the words that dripped from the mouth of George Wallace, right. interposition and nullification. Right. We see these folk enacting it right now. What else is Alabama doing? Right. What else? And so part of, part of this insistence on telling our story in a very thick way is so that we can understand the lineage of the moves that are being made and what it means not to resolve them, not to resolve the question once and for all, right? That you're not getting the virus out of the wound. You're not getting, getting the infection out of the wound. And so what? The wound eventually gets worse, right it seems like it's healed with the scab over it but no 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 something else is going on here um and so ever since the last piece of major legislation of the great society what is that fair housing act of 68 12 years later just 12 years later reagan is elected to undo it all we are living in the culmination of Forty to fifty years, right, of political doings, right. It's it's we're living its ex- exaggerated consequence now, and we want to, it's easy for us because we think in melodramatic terms in this country to see the you know the the evil character of Trump and these folk as the bearers of all wrongdoing. No, 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 no. This is this is the culmination of choices we made when you and I were much younger. Mm.
0: Well, I want to end on something which, uh, to go back to the uh, Because I'm not sure if this is optimism or pessimism, (laughs) but on Tuesday you tweeted, quote, we have to become better people. Selfishness, greed, and hatred are destroying our world. And I'm trying to read between the lines, are you meaning that we are really destroying our world, or we could be, but we're not because we're kind of moving forward in the right direction.
1: No, when we look at the world on fire, the planet is literally screaming. Um, when we see um, what's going on across Europe uh, in terms of the dark forces of hatred that, are re- that, that that's rearing um, its head, uh, what we see in this country, we see unbridled greed. Driving all sorts of decision making. Selfishness so insidious that folk won't even put on a damn mask. Folk wouldn't even put on a mask. So they have no regard for their fellows, right? In the name of liberty, in the name of freedom, God forbid. So when you when I say that selfishness and greed and hatred are destroying our world, I mean that literally. Mm-hmm. And unless we decide to deal with the mess that's in us, that lead us to make these sorts of choices, or to be silent in the face of these sorts of acts, then we are co-signers to the destruction of the world. So we all have to be better people. And again, I don't mean, I'm not talking about manners, I'm not talking about decency, I'm not talking about civility. I'm talking about a kind of moral disposition that says no, like Bartleby the Scrivener in Melville says, no, I prefer not, and willing to go down for that choice.
0: Well, this has been a truly important and compelling conversation, and I hope you'll come back again sooner than later to continue
1: it. I appreciate you, Andy. Thank you so much for being so patient with me, man.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy, and it was co-produced and co-edited by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. We'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. Have a great week.